0: Welcome to the Interlocutor Interviews Podcast. I'm Tyler Nessler, the founder of Interlocutor Magazine. And today I have with me Blaise Aguera Iarkas, who is a leading AI researcher, author, TED speaker, and vice president and fellow at Google Research. And he's just published a book called Who Are We Now?, which explores a set of surveys he conducted between 2016 and 2021, where he asked thousands of anonymous respondents from all over the u.s questions about their behavior and identity and especially about gender and sexuality so welcome blaze how are you doing
1: thank you so much for having me on tyler uh, doing well
0: well I'm happy to have you here um so this is a very ambitious project and the surveys that you conducted have been compared to the kinsey reports from the 1950s which of course challenged conventional beliefs about sexuality at the time and so your motivations for these surveys um essentially stem from your work in AI and the way that it's rapid development is, is challenging how we envision ourselves in our future in tandem with also with how we're now at a kind of a planetary breaking point environmentally, but then why did you decide to make the focus of your survey on gender and sexuality?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And I'm sure not an obvious one. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't where I began. So, uh, in the beginning, um, I um I kind of learned about Mechanical Turk which is uh, Amazon's kind of crowdsourcing platform right. for uh, for doing uh, for doing information gig work. I, I learned about it originally um through my work on AI. You know it's actually used by a lot of AI researchers early on to um to get uh labeled data for uh, for training machine learning models. Um and uh and I became very interested in it for uh, as, a, as a survey platform for understanding about humans, as opposed to just um, uh, you know labeling data, uh, I know that there have been some other researchers in social science who have used it that way. Um, and there were there were a few there were a few stimuli. One of them was that you know this all began in, in 2016. Uh, you know those of us who are not really young will, will remember that uh, that that was that was the year that Trump got elected, and it was it was a year that it felt like identity was kind of the, the, um, the defining aspect of the way society was starting to be organized mm-hmm. um, and that that sort of sense of identity politics uh, coming to the fore you know it felt like it was true both on the left and on the right, uh, and uh, gender and sexuality was just one of many aspects of, of that sort of fractal of identity that started to become kind of dominant in, in politics but you know the, the other thing that was going on uh, around this time was um, you know I, I began really uh, noticing that you know, deep questions about uh, what the point is of life, or you know, why you know, what is what is humanity all about? How should we think about it as a superorganism? I guess you know, are really coming to mind for me. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, the thing that makes us different from uh, from all of the other smart apes on the planet is that we are these kind of super social animals that that form aggregations and societies that are larger. Than uh, you know than just uh, you know individual troops or or tribes and and uh, you know in, in the sense that that a, a simple biological reproducer is just about kind of continuing the DNA lineage but once you begin to be a species that has cultural accumulation um, the whole idea of continuation is really about culture and about about uh, that that whole culture reproducing if you like as opposed to just the DNA of the individual so. That question of reproduction of culture versus reproduction of the individual felt to me like it was kind of the hidden variable uh, in a, in a lot of that debate between the the left and the right, and and that that led led directly into this sort of like you know gender and sexuality question.
0: And how do you think that rapid technological advances, in particular, combined with the environmental crisis, um, is connected to big changes in in how people are now viewing gender and sexuality? Like, how is it all intertwined to you?
1: Well, um not that long ago, uh humans were basically constrained by how many calories we could gather, and uh, you know we were trying mm-hmm. to sort of basically reproduce as fast as we could, uh consistent with uh feeding ourselves, keeping our reproductive systems working and uh you know and and feeding our babies the eleven million calories that they need to grow to grow into adulthood i mean we, we forget how long ago we lived on, or or how how recently ago we lived under these Malthusian conditions, yeah. Um, you know, that's why people used to have so many kids. Um, you know, and birth rates have have plummeted um, in, in the developed world. And, uh, you know, now in, in in all parts of the world, birth rate is, is going down dramatically. And it's far below replacement in the developed world today. Right. Um, and that, that's all happened really recently. So, you know, it seems like we've gone, we've switched from a mode of, you know, technology suddenly lifted those Darwinian or Malthusian constraints and made it possible for all of those children to survive and for our numbers to explode. And that led to scares in the middle of the last century, like Paul Ehrlich's, the population bomb and so on, that we were going to overpopulate right. the planet and destroy it. it, you know, as part of the nascent environmental movement at the time, which started to think of the whole planet as a single entity. But, but then, then there was a surprise, like we suddenly just stopped reproducing. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we began to, to, um, to stabilize. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's, it's clear that in this century, our numbers are going to stabilize and, and probably start to decline quite a bit. So, um, you know that's good news uh, if you're an environmentalist. Um, you know, endless growth is not is not possible for anything. Uh, I think we're having that, a lot of that same conversation about whether endless growth is possible in economics nowadays.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's get into the the different divisions of this book. I mean, so it's it's as I said, it's quite the scope of it is quite large, but you broke it into three core parts. Um, the first part is handedness identities based on whether people think of themselves as right-handed or left-handed or ambidextrous and then sex and gender as a center point and then humanity as a whole kind of taken from a um universal and almost geographic approach mm-hmm. so let's um start off with handedness um so i found this really interesting because Uh, you did, you did this essentially as a way to explore identity in a, in a way that's not as, uh, controversial or, you know, politically loaded as exploring gender identity. There's a way to kind of set the stage, correct? For exploring identity.
1: Exactly. To have, to have the conversation in a lower stakes place.
0: Right. And so what were some of the findings of, from the hand in his surveys that surprised you the most?
1: Yeah, there were a few, um, and you know, to be honest, I I never when I when I did handedness originally in in the surveys, it was almost like a mic check or something. I was just trying out my methods. I never yeah. expected <laughs> to publish that stuff, you know, because it just seemed right. like such a like such a boring topic. It was just sort of a way of a way of trying out the methods. But I did learn some things that surprised me, and and those and they surprised me enough that it felt worth actually sharing that that test run you know, and both the methodological learnings from it and some of the specific learnings from it in, in the book. So um, I guess, uh, you know, here are a few of the things. Uh, first of all, um, there is a big middle ground between left-handedness and right-handedness. I mean, we often talk about mm-hmm. ambidexterity. Um, There's is, there is a medical kind of definition of ambidexterity that many of us fall back on. Uh, medical ambidexterity is very rare. That's, that's uh, you know, if you ask doctors, they say, like, it's, it's less than 1% um, mm-hmm. of, of, of small kids, that's not what people say. Uh, so, you know, well over 10% of people say that they're ambidextrous and, and, and they mean something when they say that, when you look at all these behavioral questions, you know, so you're connecting questions about identity, which is to say, are you left-handed or are you right-handed with behavior? Like, you know, which hand do you use, uh, do you use scissors with and, and, um, uh, and so, or which hand do you write with and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and questions about, um, About about attitudes about this kind of stuff, or about or about uh, you know people's backgrounds, you you find um, you find that there is a big excluded middle. Uh, These these rigid categories don't work super well, and also some of the received wisdom from the medical community is not right. It's not just a question of how many people are are ambidextrous, and the fact that that does appear to be meaningful, but also things like uh, for instance, um, you know, there's there's a a commonly held statistic that that men are left-handed more often. Uh, than women, it's, and it's mm. a significant effect, and that's mm. that's true when you look at the overall population. But if you look at the breakdown by age, you see something really interesting, which is that um, it looks like a, like like all or most of that effect is actually coming from men needing to change their handedness more often than women, wow. probably as a result of getting injured more often. Right. So uh, you know that's something that you wouldn't see if you didn't like gather lots of data and look, and break things down as a function of age. And I think it kind of puts the shoe on the other foot. Of researchers who are saying it's gender linked to, you know, say, well, you know, show me that it's gender linked beyond this indirect uh, link that, that actually has to do with differing rates of injury.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I really, it, I, I liked the beginning with handedness because it, it made me, it really set the stage in terms of thinking about the way that people um, view themselves and their identities and made me think about handedness in ways I, you know, but we so many of these, of these things are kind of unconscious and I'm right-handed. So I never have really even had had to deal with any of the issues that left-handed people have to deal with in terms of like using different scissors and all kinds of things. And it got me to thinking about how, you know, like customarily we shake with our right hands, you know, things like that. It's like yeah. all these things that we kind of take for granted. And then, um, if you're out, if you're kind of outside the norm and you're left-handed, how much that can impact your life, and how oblivious other people can be to those impacts if you're not having to deal with it directly. So, hundred yeah, percent, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I'm I'm right-handed too. Uh, my mom is left-handed, um, but you know, I never thought about handedness as a particularly serious thing. But that that sort of invisibility of the majority to the majority. Is also yeah. one of the, one of the lessons that really comes through, and and you know when I really began digging into it and asking people about their experiences, you know I found out things like forced handedness uh, change, which is a little bit like you know conversion therapy, right. uh, you know for for you know if you're I mean I don't want to equate it right with with the horrors that that um, you know that that some some older gay people have gone through you know in their in in these kind of conversion therapy programs, but there's a little bit of a similar vibe to this uh, forced. Handedness switching and um, and you know it really it really harmed you know quite a few people and looking at how common that used to be you know within living memory uh, when you look again at a, as a function of age you know you, the youngest people don't have any experience of this forced handedness change I think in the in, in the U.S. there's very little of that happening now among kids mm-hmm. but you know you you look at thirty year olds forty year olds you see these numbers just rising rising up and up and up a, a gra- you know, um, um, to the point where among the older respondents a majority of 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 left-handed people um you know appear to have been uh <laughs> subject to some form of of uh, forced handedness switching when as, as kids.
0: Right. Yeah. And you know in a way like I almost thought that this like the this exploration of handedness could almost be used satirically in the sense of like trying okay. to you know like I, I can almost see it as like a like a like a comedic bit, like a like a sketch, you know? Totally. Um of uh, people getting as outraged over handedness as they do about sex and gender identity, you know, exactly. using that as a way to kind of framework that and, and kind of you, point you out some totally, of the absurdities. What's that? You could
1: totally do that. You could totally do that. Thing. It'd be really funny. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it has a lot of the same properties. There's like this biological component that's kind right. of inbuilt. There's an identity component and there's a behavioral component. So it has a lot of the same properties. But things would look a lot more absurd, right? But some of that comedy was even in the responses. Like, you know, one person responded, you know, I'm right-handed and so is everybody else I know. And (laughs) there's just no way that that's that's true unless this person, you know, only knows, you know, eight people. (laughs) So
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Well, so in the next section, which is kind of the core of the study, sex and gender, um, you begin with an exploration of family models, And you start out by comparing the the standard model in particle physics, which which is flawed, but as you point out, it has no serious competitors. Um, And you're comparing it to the nuclear family model, which um, you argue is a very 20th century concept that actually is pretty artificial and, and was never as firm of a foundation for a family unit as people think, even to this day. So Can you talk more about the flaws that you found with the the nuclear family model and what factors are now causing that model itself to to rapidly diminish in social importance?
1: Of course. Um, And this is a topic that a lot of other, a lot of other researchers have written about quite a bit too. So I I do want to, you know, make sure that I'm uh, giving some credit. You know, it cites a lot of uh, sources in addition to being an analysis of the, uh, uh, you know, just the surveys themselves. But um yeah i you know i i started off there's there's a bit of humor in the book and i started off with this sort of nuclear age nuclear family uh kind of um mid-century mid-20th century vibes because it is yeah. sort of funny yeah. <laughs> you know like i don't know about you but I, I grew up with like the flintstones and jetsons cartoons and mm-hmm. uh you know, they were dubbed into Spanish in my case, which was especially hilarious. But the, <laughs> the, that idea that, that everything's always been the same, you know, from the Stone Age to the Space Age, like these are the invariant things. And there's a right. the family, there's like your garage and your two kids. And, you know, the, 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 the husband goes out and does the work and the, the wife stays at home and is a homemaker uh, and so on. Um, that, that is a very, um, it's a very modern and specific construct. Um, patriarchy is old. Uh, patriarchy goes, goes at least as far back as, as, as farming and, and maybe much further, mm-hmm. but, um, but, um, the nuclear family is kind of a, is kind of a 19th century invention. And, um, and one that, one that I think is, um, I mean, we, we can see that it's breaking apart in, in terms of like, uh, greatly declining numbers of people who are married. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, also causal factors like the fact that, that a lot of, uh, <laughs> gender pay gap, uh. Um, our gender pay graphs are shrinking, and that and that women are, although they have not closed, um, but also, you know, there, until very recently, there were a lot of strict limitations on, you know, even women's ownership of property or their right. ability to sign contracts on their own, etc. cetera. And, and that that very aggressive kind of patriarchy has been a huge factor in uh, in the creation and propagation of the nuclear family. Um, Joseph Henrich has written a lot about this in in, in his books on on weird uh, Western. Educated, industrialized, rich, democratic uh, countries, and how they emerged, and how the nuclear family came out of a bunch of right of religious religious uh, edicts, uh, you know, in, in the in the early modern. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of these things are are, are falling apart. Even even um, uh, Brooks, uh, David Brooks, the like conservative conservative writer and commentator, you know, has 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 noted this. Like everybody, everybody sees that that uh, that these structures are are starting to fray.
0: And you had, you got into uh, parenting? is that the correct phrase? Yes. Um, which was another kind of like way to sort of pick apart this, you know, this notion of, of this neat, neatly defined nuclear family. Because going back to earlier uh, human eras, you, there was much more shared parenting, which really Absolutely. impacted social connections, community yeah. connections and identity
1: yeah this is this is both an anthropological finding and even a a, a um a finding a primate a primatological finding. So Sarah blaffer um has done some who's a primatologist, has done a bunch of wonderful work on on allo parenting or shared child rearing in in other um, uh, in in other primate species as well. and And it turns out that um you know humans are are you know like marmosets and like like a few other. Uh, of the primates, uh, alloparent, meaning that you know aunties and, and uncles and and and, mm-hmm. um, and and babysitters, young babysitters, and so on, all take part in raising the kids. Um, and it, without that help, um, you you know we would have a really hard time pulling it off, especially you know back in the in the hunter-gatherer days. Uh, and in fact, it's exactly those species that alloparent that have very high rates of uh, infant abandonment, infanticide. Uh, Etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if if the mother doesn't feel that she has the support that she needs to uh, to raise uh, the baby, then you know there there are uh, there are mechanisms that 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 um that that allow her to you know literally abort that effort, uh, and that's that's a feature that we see uh, across uh, all of the primate species that that have that that have that alloparental property.
0: Yeah, and then further along, you also got into um, the the age span differences between men and women, and how that could be related, essentially, to the value of grandma, grandmothers over grandfathers in terms of alloparenting, which I found yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah,
1: that's also. I, I also learned about that, you know, as I was researching this and uh, the grandmother hypothesis. Um, <laughs> I find compelling. So, yeah, yeah. in the U.S., uh, women live about six years longer. Uh, than men on average, uh, which is not a small difference, yeah. and um, and it may be that the reasons for that are, as much as anything else, uh, just evolutionary, because um, basically uh, you know the, the value of of grandmothers in in ensuring the survival of their grandchildren who are related to them genetically is very high, um, and you can see that in many many traditional societies. Like there's a, there's a there's a measurable difference in survival outcomes. For uh, children who have living grandmothers versus not, um, mm-hmm. menopause is actually possibly a part of that story in the sense that if you stop being able to have your own uh, kids at a certain age and shift modes into supporting the grandkids, you're you're not sort of taking away attention from that other activity. Whereas grandfathers uh, are not nearly <laughs> it turns out are not nearly as useful in terms of, you know just empirically in terms of in terms of of increasing the like the likelihood of survival of their of their grandkids.
0: Yeah, no, I, that was really kind of mind-blowing to me the whole thing. I mean, I've always known about the, you know, the statistically how women live longer and but I'd never heard some of these theories behind uh, especially connected to parenting. Mm. So yeah, that was fascinating. Um and within this section you got into uh basically perceptions of like the true mission of sex. You know, the branding of non-heterosexual relations as essentially Pathological. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and some of your findings, and how that connects into overall where we're at now with uh, sex and gender identities?
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, this 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 really cuts to that basic question of like the purpose of life. You know, what's the purpose of stuff? Right. Um, and uh, you know, if you're if you're a doctor, you think about purposiveness or teleology, as it's sometimes called in, in philosophy, um, kind of very naturally because when you're thinking about, say, an, an organ, you know, and what it does, you know, there's always the like, well, what, what's its function? What's it for? Um, and, uh, you know, that seems clear enough if it's like, I don't know, the liver, you know, but it detoxifies, you know, certain chemicals. You don't, if that doesn't happen, you're not going to live very long. Um, but then you ask questions like, well, what are hands for? You know, or or what are or what are people for? You know, for that matter. You know, what's the human use of human beings? As as uh, you know, the cyberneticist uh, Norbert Wiener wrote in the middle of the twentieth century. And 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 if you think about like you know, well, what is the purpose of of, of our sex organs? What's the purpose of sex? Um, you know, if you're thinking about that from a sort of functional teleological perspective, and, and the you know, in, in the Victorian period, people were very much thinking this way. And and through much of the twentieth century, it's like, well, that's that's about that's about reproduction. It's about making babies. Therefore, any sexual act that is not about reproduction is a perversion. This is where that term perversion comes from uh meaning it's a perversion of the normal or natural function of those parts of the body uh and that would include of course homosexuality it would include uh um you know even even using birth control or or masturbation right. yeah uh, so uh you know that that's where that's where all of that came from and and and, you know, just as we would pathologize a liver that doesn't detoxify, you know, you then, you know, move pretty easily into this sort of pathologizing of people who are not doing it right, you know, in order to propagate right. the human species.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously the tolerance for, you know, these uh, quote unquote deviations has really changed, especially in these weird societies, right? I would say, um, but not without a lot of turmoil. You know, because now we're getting into these pronoun wars, which have been going on for a while, um, which are, you know, really, you know, like uh, minefields to get into. And people get so, so upset about different uses of pronouns. And so how do you feel like biology, medicine, environment, language, culture, how are they all intersect in ways that influence now how we're thinking about what we call ourselves in terms of gender and pronouns?
1: Yeah, I mean it's such a big question, and, and that's why the book ended up so so big because it tries to take exactly that on. Yeah. But um, but if I were to, if I were to, to try and, um, and and give you a reasonably concise answer here, it's that you know we've, we we um, especially as we gather in cities and as we start to um, to sort of culturally evolve faster, and 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 you know this maybe starts to. I, I, we're not talking yet about the third part of the book, but the fact that 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 kind of cultural evolution happens faster in cities, and that's that's a finding that's been reproduced many times, means that that those shifts in ideas about human purpose, um, you know, will happen faster in denser places than in, than in uh, in sparser places in the countryside, um, you know. It, whereas whereas the countryside may still be um, sort of focused on on uh, on purposiveness in the older sense. Uh, in, in the more traditional sense, um, this idea that, uh, you know, for, for example, uh, you know, um, the the sex organs are not just about reproduction, or human sexuality is not just about about propagating genes. Um, these these things become uh, a lot a lot more natural to accept uh, in those cultural reactors of the cities, and 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 that's why I think that that's really why gender and sexuality have become this flashpoint in in the culture wars, because you know, there's still a certain degree of Victorian thinking about, you know, the purpose of this is to propagate individual humans right. uh, in the more conservative parts of the world. Whereas um, the, the cities in many ways have moved on and they're uh, they not, you know, they're not centering uh, biological reproduction in that way. They're, they're all about culture and all of these different, um, you know, pronouns and uh, um, identities and so on have their own cultures that are themselves reproducers, if you like
0: yeah and then you also got into kind of the difficulties of just measuring the true size and variables of like the transgender community and you know trans identity um can you talk a little bit about that because you i think you you, you discovered it, it was very not very cut and dry in terms of the sense of uh easeability of of measuring like who identifies as what
1: right not at all you you really get into a space where, um, you know, and and this, this starts to get into kind of the foundations of knowledge and, and philosophy, uh, you know, like what, what does it mean for a thing to be a thing and so on? Um, because yeah, if you, if you, um, if you ask people, you know, are you trans, for instance, you get certain answers and, and, you know, I asked those questions. So that's where, that's where the the data come from. Uh, if you ask people, what do you think it means to be trans? That of course changes. Uh, it changes by, by, geography, by age. Um, and uh, you know, and, and within the trans community, it, it differs between uh, older and younger people. The same thing. If you ask, you know, what does queer mean, for instance, uh, you know, among the older uh, population, queer means gay or lesbian. Um, that's it. Uh, yeah. That was that was its its uh, its original. You know, when it was used as a slur by um, by Lord. John Sholto in the nineteenth century that that was the that was the meaning. It was just gay. I, I don't I don't think he even included lesbian in the original definition. Um, and it broadened, and now it's broadened a lot further, of course. And there's been a reclamation. But you know, is it you know exactly how broad is it, and you know, has it been reclaimed or not? Those those things vary by by population. So everything kind of becomes relativistic. It's yeah. not that. It's not that they're not that, that these things are not real. They're they're completely real, and they correlate with a lot of observable variables and a lot of behaviors and so on. So it's not like you can say, "Oh, it's just culturally constructed; therefore, it's not real." No, uh, it's culturally constructed and it's real, uh, and that reality, uh, you know, has this kind of relativistic property.
0: Well, yeah, and you know the 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 label queer, um, the way that it's evolved, has struck me recently too because basically people are identifying as queer but are heterosexual you know and that when i when i first encountered that i i i couldn't really wrap my mind around that because yes i'm i'm a little older and i associate that word specifically with gay and lesbian so i'm like you're queer but you're also straight so it it, it's becoming very fluid you know
1: it is in interesting ways Well, and, and even even if you ask people, you know, I, I one of the graphs in the in the book is just you know people who say that they both are straight and gay, you know, both heterosexual yeah. and homosexual. If you're older, nobody identifies as both. Yeah. Um, but among among younger people, it's it's not that uncommon. Um and and I think that a part of that is about um about starting to differentiate between behavior and identity. Uh so you know, the, the classic case of this is bisexual invisibility. So you know if you are uh if you're bisexual uh or pansexual as as uh, you know the, the term the term that a lot of younger people are using as well then that would mean um you know that that you are attracted potentially to people of either sex or any sex uh or gender um and um you know and so if you're if you're uh, older or in the countryside and you um and you are say you know, married in a, uh, you know, to, to somebody of the opposite sex, your likelihood of still saying you're bisexual is much, much lower right. than in in the city. Where, and if you're younger, where, you know, people still still carry that card, if you like, even if they're not, you know, um, sort of going to the club. Um, <laughs> and that can lead to all kinds of complicated dynamics. I mean, there, there are people who are in those communities who get you know annoyed because they said like, you're not paying the price of entry you know you want to you want to have the label but not you know but not sort of uh, um, show up that way there are, there are people who uh who get cross generationally you know like kids these days don't know what, what it's you know what what it means uh and so on but you know fundamentally these things are again about propagating and and participating in cultures as opposed to just describing a a behavior
0: yeah and also, you know, talking about the like the rural and and urban divide with the with these identities, you have, uh, you know, what is it, men who men who have sex with men, MSM. I don't know if that phrase is still used, but basically, men who have sex with men but don't identify as gay, yeah. you know, or that's not part of their identity, and they would they would not definitely not describe themselves as gay, right. but they're for all intents and purposes engaged in homosexual acts. So it's just. There's just so so many variations and variables to this, based on geography and probably social class and all kinds of things.
1: Absolutely, and and context. You know, context. How, yeah, how exactly. you how you're going to present in different situations. And this came up with pronouns as well. You know, there are people who who use pronouns in a certain way with their friends, but um, but uh, in a different way at work or, or in other in other contexts. So you know, we, we're not singular either in the way we show up in different settings.
0: Have you heard of this show years and years on BBC? I haven't, no. Yes, yeah, it, it, it it was a show that is, I don't think it is running anymore, but it, um, it basically goes all the way into the 2030s. It follows a, a like a set group of characters, families, um, speculating on the near future. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a very kind of um, satirical part where um, this urban family their kid comes out as trans to them and they 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 try to be very supportive and and um they don't understand why their their child gets so upset with them because they find out that they don't mean that they're transgender they're identifying as transhuman <laughs> <laughs> that's funny they're like mom and dad you don't understand no I, i'm transhuman <laughs> Which is a, kind of another whole stage, you know, like beyond yes. this, like we're, we're kind of getting towards with AI and everything trans yeah. transhuman. human. So it's kind of this, I thought that was just like a funny kind of play on also, you know, like the, the, these identities and how people get so worked up over them.
1: That may not seem like much of a joke in another five or 10 years.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So in the, let's get to the last section here, which you just call humanity, um, but it's kind of taking a, a wider view of our civilization, often literally from space. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of things that are, you know, kind of simple, but really striking. You include two photos. One of uh, a composite image of, of the, uh, basically America, of North America, um, at night, you know, with like the, uh, these sort of almost like Christmas lights or fairy lights uh, of, of cities. Which is very striking to see, you know. You get a very immediate sense of our, our presence and our impact on on the planet's surface just by seeing, um, you know, the illumination of our urban areas at night, and you can easily pick out cities uh, without any other identifying markers. Um, and the other really striking image is is, a, is an older image, but one taken from the moon of Earth, you know, and just when you we take this wider step back. Um, and look at just you know the planet itself. It puts things into such a radically different perspective, and all these arguments and you know fighting over identity and and where we fit. It's like, well, we're just on this little marble, you know. <laughs> yeah. And there's also that famous uh, that was that tiny blue dot, mm-hmm. small blue dot, the pale, photo? The pale blue dot, yeah, the pale blue dot, yeah, which is even more striking because then that that was taken um where that was that was on one of the space missions in the 70s right
1: yeah yeah pointing pointing back toward earth i think when it reached yeah. when it reached jupiter or so uh um or, or someplace pretty far out i'm not remembering now but yeah just how small the planet is
0: it's literally just a tiny little blue dot and this is what yeah. we live on and fight over and in the grand scheme of things you know it 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 just becomes almost existential looking at these images and it's just struck it just struck me how simple just looking at these images can kind of like change contextually how you think about you know society and and all of these identity issues Mm -hmm. um but so going back to because urbanization so you we we had taught you you did touch on this earlier but accelerating urbanization has been fundamental to the construction of these New identities, and then one thing that you had talked about, especially in the sense of like uh, deviance from heterosexual norms, there were these ideas. I you know I, I think in the 19th century, going into the early you know 20th century, that cities themselves encouraged these deviant behaviors. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because you you did kind of touch on that in the book. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but I, I'm really I'm really glad that you enjoyed um, those those images. Uh, they're they're very powerful for me too. Um, the the fairy lights you know of 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 the night side of Earth from outer space is, is an incredible image it and, really and, is
0: yeah yeah it's yeah
1: it's really special it's it's called Black Marble uh, from NASA and it's oh. a, it's an analog to, to the earlier Blue Marble image which you know shows the planet as a um you know as as a as a natural object if you like right. um, and Black Marble shows how that natural object now includes cities you know how we are in the Anthropocene in, in a very deep way. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, uh, the, the whole pitting the city versus countryside, uh, idea, you know, it's an old one. It's, it's one that dates back at least to the Romans, uh, you know, where cities were seen as if feet, uh, you know, over, over civilized, uh, you know, uh, somehow like a, a place where perversion, you know, in the sense that I was talking about earlier happens. Um, the, um, you know, for me, movies like star Wars are, are like, like really kind of, uh, uh make this point in a very iconic way. Huh. The, um the jedi uh, you know are monastic they're low density uh, the you know luke's father you know is kind of like lives in the midwest basically and and you know things are conservative there they don't they don't change you know there's there's not are not a lot of people things are old fashioned whereas the uh, the spaceport uh, you know with all of its uh, weird different kinds of aliens mixing and drinking together there's <laughs> right. an undertone of sexuality about it you know and and, and of and of frisson uh, and and that's that's been a, a, a like a perennial thing that that tension between the evil city with all of its uh you know diversity and and cultural foment and sexiness in a way you know versus this uh you know a more traditional conservative and chaste countryside
0: yeah yeah absolutely so kind of wrapping this up in what ways do you think we may have a more inclusive future and in sense of human identity specifically influenced by technology and and you know even AI itself um and Early on in the book, you talk about how, like, basically with our phones and the Internet, um, technology is kind of become an extension of our own personal identities and of our own bodies, even. So yeah. it's kind of a broad question, but where do you where do you see this headed in terms of either harmful or beneficial um, in terms of shaping a sense of human identity in terms of increasing polarization or, or, or helping to increase, uh, connectivity between people?
1: Yeah. Uh, I, again, a big question, one that I try to tackle from a few different sides in the book, and that's why the book is so big. Yeah. Um, but, um, I guess here are a few, here are a few thoughts about it. Uh, one is, um, younger people are more similar, uh, in, in the city and in the countryside than older people. And, and I think the part of that is that younger people live online more. And right. that that does collapse space in certain ways. It means that, you know, all cities are becoming more alike than those cities are with their own countrysides, you know, even, even right nearby, um, mm-hmm. you know, New York and San Francisco are a lot more similar than, you know, New York city and upstate New York, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, and that's, that's true globally too. Um, and, and a lot of that is down to, is down to, to media, to communication, uh, electronic communication. Um, the, of course the the presence of online fora and uh, and the echo chambers that that creates and so on also provide a mechanism for um for schism uh and mm-hmm. for polarization and for the development of more and more identities that that uh that push against other ones but it's kind of both at the same time you know like you without that common medium without those without that common language you can't even differentiate yourself from the other so it's it's both at once uh it's it's kind of like a uh, um it's kind of like speciation in a way, you know, the, uh, it's, it's only, it's only possible for things to occupy different niches by differentiating from each other. And yet the fact that we all operate on a common platform is why it's even possible for us to occupy the same environment, you know? So even, even if you have an antagonistic relationship, I don't know, predator and prey, you know, predator and prey have to be very similar. They have to have the same biochemistry in order for the predator to be able to eat the prey, even, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's true of language too, and true of human right. societies. So we're both drawing together and becoming planetary and also uh becoming ever more um fractured and and if there's if there's hope in all of this I think that the hope comes from um from us actually being able to inhabit many identities at once uh so that it's not it's not singular if there's one right. singular identity that dominates everything else uh and that pulls you apart from most of humanity then that that seems like like a real a real problem, or if there are clumps that 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 you know turn into a barbell, right? Where we're just, you know, people are not talking to each other across a certain divide because there aren't shared communities in which they interact. That feels like a real problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, listen, it was great talking with you, Blaze. And thank
1: you, thank you, Tyler, likewise, great great questions, and I'm I'm so oh, excited you. that you uh, that you read this and enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it was. So the book is out. It's called Who Are We Now? It's coming out on via Hat and Beard Press on December nineteenth, And definitely encourage people to pick it up because we just scratched the surface of this in this conversation. And it's also visually rich. You know, we talked about these, the you know, these space imageries, but also just with the, the, a lot of infographics, a lot of graphics a lot of just you know it, it's a it's a kind of a multimedia experience in a way even though it's an analog book so yeah uh it 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 covers a wide scope but um it's a really important topic obviously right now especially with where we're at and connecting it to technology and urbanization and, and the environment and everything like that so Thanks again. And thanks a lot to everyone out there listening. You can find us online at interlocutorinterviews.com and on Instagram at interlocutor.interviews. Plus visit our YouTube channel. And if you're a fan of our arts coverage, you can sign up to be a subscriber or donate via Patreon. Just click on the Patreon link on our site. And I'll be back soon with another Interlocutor Interviews podcast episode.